Welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 568, October 21st, 1995, £1.50. Pence. Hopefully when you're listening to this my voice doesn't sound uh, uh, too weird. I don't think it does. I've done a check but you never know. Um, I went to the dentist this morning and had my mouth numbed so... Uh, I was a dribbling mess for a, for a good couple of hours. So yeah, it should be should be okay. It sounds all right in my head, but and I've listened back and it sounds all right, but who knows? Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about my voice when I can just go ahead and check this. Jesus Christ! Do you know what I said last week about how sometimes I really struggle with things to say? Opening up this podcast, Jesus, doing this every week. It's, I mean, it's really funny, right? Because I think I have a lot of chat. And I definitely can talk. I can talk for England 100%. I mean, I do a podcast. Of course, I can talk for England. And I can talk about The Rock forever. You know, The Rock, The Mosh. Whatever you want to talk about, we can talk about it. But when it comes to putting a microphone in front of my face, sometimes I I just (laughs) get a bit stuck. I don't know what to say. I want to make this interesting for you, the listener. I also don't want to bore you. And I realise that this intro is probably doing exactly that. So let's move on. This week's cover stars are Def Leppard. We're so big it's unbelievable. Def Leppard, the greatest British story ever told. Bon Jovi, UK tour exclusive. White Zombie Offspring, what do the stars spend their cash on? Pantera, we're ready to rock. That's that's nice, isn't it? Pantera are ready to rock, lovely. Skid Row, come and meet Seven the Boys. Ozzy Osbourne, South American Argy Bargy plus Nine Inch Nails, Nail Bomb, Maiden, Garbage and Shelter. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be followed on Instagram, Karangback Issues, Twitter, Karangpod, and email karangbackissues at gmail.com. There is a ton to pack into this week's podcast, so let's crack on and we begin with a swift word from the editor. If someone were to say to you, what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought? Is a fair bet you'd say a car or a house? or a CD player, or something. You're not likely to say a $10,000 statue or a German dagger, now are you? But then, you're probably not a rock star. We put the question to a bunch of bands this week, see page 14, and incredibly, statues and daggers are on the list of most expensive things they bought. The most expensive thing I ever bought was a knackered old Vauxhall Cavalier. Cack, eh? Elsewhere in the office, we have Paul Rees, Malcolm Dome and Liz Evans all shelling out their biggest ever wadge of cash to buy computers. Chris Watts splashed out on a van. Paul Elliott went for a champagne-coloured mini metro. Legroom in the front, leg over room in the rear. And John Moore dug deep for a Volkswagen Beetle. Queen of the Spenders has to be Claire Douse, who's just splashed out on a new car. Still, she'll have the shock of her life when they bring it round from the showroom next week. It's actually the model pictured above Chortle. Mike Peake, Deputy Editor. And the uh, picture above is of a uh, Matchbox car, which is one of those toy cars. Well done, Kerrang. That's very, very funny. 
ha 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 one two three four five six seven Mayhem, the loudest news first. Def Leppard will play three gigs on three continents in a single day in an attempt to get themselves into the Guinness Book of Records. The man whose When Love and Hate Collide single stormed into the UK charts at number seven will make their record-breaking bid on Monday, October 23rd when they'll do shows in Africa, Europe and North America in the space of 24 hours. The itinerary will begin at one minute past midnight with a show in Hercules Cave in Tangier, Morocco. The band will then drive to Tangier Airport for 6am, where a hired plane will fly them to London. After a three-hour flight, they'll play the second show at Shepherd's Bush Bottom Line Club in London. Leopard will perform a 30-minute acoustic set, and fans of the band will be admitted to the show on a first-come, first-served basis. Tickets, only available on the day of the gig at the door, are free. The band will play at 11.45am prompt. Leopard will then fly from London to Vancouver at 3pm on a chartered flight. They'll arrive in Vancouver at 6pm Canadian time and play their final gig at 9pm in a secret downtown venue. According to a spokesman for the band, the whole idea was incredibly enough, just one of those things that came up in conversation. However, Bon Jovi did busk in three countries, albeit England, Scotland and Wales on June 14th for this year, prior to the release of the These Days album. Look out for the full story of Leopard's world record attempt coming soon in Kerrang. And for more on Def Leopard, turn to page 38. Pantera have started work on their new album at guitarist Dimebag Daryl's home studio. The new stuff is kicking, he beams. We're making some good demos, working through until about 7 in the morning. Phil Anselmo comes down for like two days at a time. We prepare some stuff and he comes down and we weed the good shit out. How different is the new material from the last album, Far Beyond Driven? None of our records sound alike, besides the fact that they're in the Pantera fucking groove. We've all got um, three finished tracks so far. We haven't even worked to get those, they just came. We'll be demoing all the stuff out in my studio as soon as we're done here. We're going to a place called Dallas Sound Lab where they worked on Far Beyond Driven to cut the tracks. Look out for the album, man. It's going to be a strong motherfucker. Daryl expects the finished album by March 1996. There's also a new Pantera home video in the works, which was filmed on their last world tour. We pretty much document ourselves the whole time we're touring, says Daryl. That should hopefully be out by the end of this year. At this point, Daryl is interrupted by the doorbell ringing in his house. He returns some five minutes later. I had to let my brother Vinnie Paul in the gate. Man, he explains, he's here, we're ready to rock. Bon Jovi are set to return to the UK next summer to play a series of stadium shows. The New Jersey superstars who are currently playing dates in South America are in the process of confirming the dates, although no official announcement is expected to be made before next year. The band will actually be playing in Europe on November 23rd, when they are scheduled to perform live at the MTV Europe Awards in Paris. However, no trip to the UK is planned at this time, contrary to reports which wrongly suggested that they will be playing a charity show at London's Royal Albert Hall on November 21st. Prior to the planned UK Summer 96 tour, John Bon Jovi will be spending the early part of next year in London working on his second major feature film. John, who takes the romantic lead in the forthcoming film Moonlight and Valentino, alongside Whoopi Goldberg, will be appearing in The Leading Man, 
although there are no details as yet on who will co-star. Caius, the acclaimed US stoner rock outfit have split up due to irreconcilable differences between the band members. The quartet decided to go their separate ways after completing a series of European dates to promote their most recent album Sky Valley. Rumours have been circulating for some time that frontman John Garcia was set to quit and that the band and their record company Elektra were at loggerheads over the commercial failure of And The Circus Leaves Town. However, at the time of the split, Caius was still signed to Elektra. The band's latest release is scheduled to be a split single with Wall, which will appear on the US through Bong Load Records. Apparently, both bands recorded their respective as yet unnamed tracks in the desert whilst high on mushrooms. At the time of going to press, no one from the Caius camp was available for comment. Paradise Lost will play four headlining dates in the UK in December. The band have lined up the following shows which were still to be confirmed at the time of going to press. Wolverhampton Wolfron Hall 14th, Bradford St George's 15th, Cardiff St David's Hall 16th and London Kentish Town Forum on the 17th. A new limited edition version of Draconian Times has just been released through Music for Nations, which packages the album in a special book form. This incorporates the lyrics for every song on the album, plus a full list of all the shows the band have played since August when they kicked off a South and Central American tour with Ozzy Osbourne in Mexico. Collective Soul, the least hyped platinum band in the US, will play London's Highbury Garage on October 31st. The Atlanta Georgia-based quintet, whose uh, two albums, last year's Hints, Allegations and Things Left Unsaid, and its eponymously titled successor, have both sold in excess of millions of copies. They've cracked the US the old-fashioned way on the road, initially supporting Van Halen in arenas, then headlining their own theatre dates. Collective Soul currently stands at number 59 on the Billboard chart, 21 places above Bon Jovi's These Days. It's also sold as many copies as whole without Courtney Love's blanket media coverage. We're not a press-orientated band, insists main man Ed Rowland. We're not achieved uh, our success off the back of a trend. It's because of the songs and we've turned our asses off. We'll play to anybody and everybody. We want to be big everywhere. Now, within the news section and next to Mayhem America Weekly, Kerrang! has a piece entitled Ones to Watch. They do this every week and uh, quite often uh, a few of the bands that I've... Uh, that, sorry, that I... That have been included I've never actually heard of and I don't think they've ever been heard of again. So it seems a little moot for me to read those out. But the ones to watch for this week are Korn. Uh, and I just think this is a really interesting um, an interesting thing in Kerrang! Because obviously they went on to pretty much be the biggest band in the world. I mean, there's, there's not really much argument with that. Um, they were huge. They were so massive. They're... Um, they were just starting to rise in Kerrang! at this point. I think I've made mention of this previously. There was a live gig of theirs that was mentioned. Uh, Morat had the Korn record on um, on his playlist on, in the charts. They're due to play the UK, uh, well, in 1995, doing a headlining show at the LA2. And I think they were supposed to support Primus in London, but they pulled out, but they ended up uh, according to people on Instagram, which is such a great resource for um, me putting this stuff out and then getting the information back. Apparently they supported Primus on a couple of dates in the UK, which were their debut shows. But their first headlining show was with uh, Poor and Sheer, I think, at the LA2. Anyway, I'm just going to read this um, little piece out. Korn, the heavyweight Californian fivesome, will release their self-titled debut album through Epic Immortal in the UK on November 13th. 
Courtney's already storming up the US charts, having recently broken into the Billboard Top 100. To date, it's sold nearly 200,000 copies stateside and rising. The band will form in 93 when vocalist Jonathan Davis hooked up with bassist Fieldy, guitarist vocalist Brian, guitarist Jay Monkey Shaffer and drummer David, also a member of Infectious Grooves. The instrumental foursome had previously got together in Huntington Beach, California, a traditional haven for quality punk and hardcore music. When he completed the lineup, Davis was working as an autopsy assistant in a local coroner's office. I was born and raised on music, he explained. My family had a music store and I spent all my time after school taking music lessons. Piano, upright bass, violin, clarinet and trumpet. Davis's classical orientated musical training also took in the bagpipes and he can be heard wailing away on the song Shoots and Ladders. Within two weeks of settling on their lineup, Corner recorded a demo featuring the likes of Blind, Predictable and Daddy which have since made it onto the album. A further couple of weeks on, they made their live debut at a local club called California Dreams. Cornwich was produced by Ross Robinson at Indigo Ranch Studios in California, has also had a serious impact with fellow US musos. Corn have toured the states with the likes of Biohazard, Megadeth, Sick of It All and Danzig. In January 96, they're set to support Ozzy Osbourne for two months in North America. Corn will make their UK live debut at London's LA2 with Poor, on October 27th and then headlined Leeds Cockpit on November the 4th. Records news and Bush, the multi-platinum Brit grunge stars issue a new single come down through Trauma Interscope on November the 20th. Civ, the New York hardcore act, follow up the release of their debut album Set Your Goals on October 23rd with a single Can't Wait One Minute More through uh, East West and it will be released on November the 20th. Clawfinger, the Swedish hardcore rap crossover band, release a single title tomorrow through East West on November the 6th. Dub War, the fast rising Brit rock rap crossover act, will put out a four track single through Earache before Christmas. This has been produced by Sensors Haggis. Napalm Death, the veteran extreme metal combo, will put out a seven track mini album titled Greed Killing through Earache at the end of November. Two of the cuts are taken from the band's forthcoming full LP Diatribes, whilst four more are taken from the same sessions. Produced by Colin Richardson, but will be exclusive to this release. There will also be a live track. Tour news and Camden Crawl. This is an indoor festival taking place in London's Camden area on November 16th. It runs from 6pm to 2am at five venues. Dingwall's Club Spangle, Monarch Club Cat, Castle Haven Sausage Machine, Laurel Tree Piao, and Dublin Castle Plastic Factory. Among the 15 bands set to appear are Blumfield, Joey Fat, Donkey Gallon Drunk, Bob Tilton. Tickets are five quid from Rough Trade Shops, Rhythm Records, Camden, Stargreen, and Ticketmaster. Every ticket holder will get a free 15 track CD featuring all of the bands. Cradle of Filth, the UK black metal act, play London Astoria on December the 15th. Filter, the US industrial combo, play London's Yulu on December the 1st. Alanis Morissette, the multi-platinum American performer, plays dates at Glasgow Garage October 20th, Manchester University 22nd and London Shepherd's Bush Empire on the 23rd. Pumpkin Bath, this all-day event takes place at Bath Pavilion on November the 4th. Appearing will be Stiff Little Fingers, Sham69, Alternative TV, 999, UK Subs, uh, Tempole Tudor, John Cooper Clark, The Vibrators and B-Bang Cider. Doors open at 12 noon and tickets are priced at £14.50 from 5 The Old Stables, Kaya Park, Tembury, Wells, Worcester, WR15, 8RP. 
Make all checks payable to J.A. Smith and include an SAE. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens. Starting this week with Don K in New York. Benefits have been the gig of choice lately for New York celebrities. Evan Seinfeld of Biohazard hosted a benefit show at Tramps for Bosnian refugees, while Rock for Choice, the pro-choice organization founded by L7, sponsored a bash at Coney Island High with up-and-coming industrial combo Horgasm, among others. A big congratulations to Handsome, who are led by former Helmet guitarist Peter Mengede. They've just signed with Epic Records under the supervision of A&R magnate Michael Goldstone. He specialises in minor signings like Pearl Jam and Radiance and Machine. Handsome looks set to go to Virgin Records before Epic and the work label intervened. Oddly, the latter two labels ended up bidding against each other despite the fact that they're both subsidiaries of Sony, which shows just how confusing this entire business is getting. ACDC looks set to have returned with a bang. Their Ball Breaker album was the highest new entry in the Billboard Top 200 going in at number 4, two spots ahead of the artist formerly known as Prince, and selling some 121,000 copies in the process. The band who've traditionally been one of the biggest draws on the live circuit are expected to announce their US tour dates in the very near future. Ever wonder what happened to Aussie Whitesnake Quiet Riot bassist Rudy Sarzo? Well, it seems he's now started his own label, Sarzo Music which will specialise in rock artists from South America. Sazo himself was born in Cuba. His first release is Generation Mutants from the Argentinian band Logos. Rudy has a slate of releases planned from an array of South of the Border finds. However, there's no truth to the rumour that he plays bass on each and every album. US News Extra Silverchair have had their debut album Frog Stomp certified platinum for 1 million sales in the US. Kiss's original guitarist Ace Freely and drummer Peter Chris will be touring together from November. The as yet unnamed outfit they'll be putting together should kill off the endless rumours of a Kiss reunion tour. Stabbing Westwood, the Chicago industrialists will release their second album, What Do I Have To Do, through Columbia in January. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Speaking of playing Las Vegas, Former Van Halen singer David Lee Roth is currently planning a week's residency at the Gambling City's Bally's venue. Diamond Dave's show runs in competition to Julio Iglesias and Johnny Mathis, who are also both in town. Machines of Loving Grace, the US industrial mob whose self-titled debut album caused the fair old stir last year are currently holed up in an LA studio working on the follow-up with producer Sylvia Massey. It's expected to come out early next year. Iggy Pop made a guest appearance with the Neurotic Boy Outsiders. The band put together by Guns N' Roses pair Duff McKagan and Matt Sorum, ex-Sex Pistols Steve Jones and Duran Duran bassist John Taylor at the Viper Room last week. Iggy sang three songs with them including two Stooges classics, Raw Power and I Wanna Be Your Dog. In recent weeks, the Neurotic Boy Outsiders have been joined by such star guests as GNR Man Slash, former Sex Pistol John Lydon and Brian Setzer of the Stray Cats. Next week's planned guest is Billy Idol. The foursome have expanded their side project from playing Monday nights at the Viper Room, spending a weekend entertaining at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. So you're in a band. 
you've sold shitloads of albums and you're laughing all the way to the bank. But what do you spend your hard-earned dosh on? The most expensive thing I ever bought, Kerrang Investigates. Luke Morley Thunder. I spent a lot of money setting up a 16-track studio in my flat in South East London. I showed out over £20,000. It's something I've always wanted ever since I started writing songs. I got a particularly nice publishing check one day, so I thought, right, I'm going to do it. What a performance. I thought you just went out and bought one, but you've got to take into account the size of the room and precisely what equipment you need. Boring. Nuno Betancourt Extreme. I guess the most expensive thing I bought was my new house, but the price doesn't sound all that impressive. If it was like $2 million, I'd tell you. I guess after that, the thing that cost me the most money was my wedding. We got married in Portugal, and we had to fly my relatives over there, and also all of Nuno's wife's Susie's from Australia. It cost about $120,000, and that didn't include the ring or the honeymoon. Lemmy Motorhead. I once bought a German dagger for around £5,000. I collect German stuff, and collections are like a disease, like cancer. It really eats at you. The more you have, the more you get. And it never quite finishes because if you collect something worth having, there's always something you haven't got. There's always the unattainable. I'll tell you what's weird. I've got two girlfriends in America. They're both black and they have no problem being in my house with all that German World War II shit. I'm afraid. I think the British Empire was probably worse than Hitler. We probably killed more people because we have more time to do it. Hitler was only around 12 years. We were there for 300. Motorhead's been going eight years longer than the Third Reich. Rob Zombie, White Zombie. I bought this Ultraman statue and it's 8 feet tall and it's up fist up in the air. It cost $10,000. It was um, after being on tour for like 3 years and I was like, man, I'm going to blow all my money on something really stupid. And I did. But it's cool though. Money well spent. Sebastian Bach Skid Row. The most expensive thing I ever bought was rock stardom. The second most expensive thing was a guy's busted jaw in a crowd. That's his notorious bottle throwing incident. That cost me a lot. I don't want to even think about how expensive that little incident was, but I don't actually buy a lot of material things. Like, I don't go buying Harley Davidsons or anything. I don't even know how to ride a motorcycle. Slash Guns and Roses. I bought a Porsche when I was fucked up and stoned out of my mind one afternoon on the whim, and I drove there to buy it in a limo. That's about as spinal tap as I've gotten to date. I've still got the car though, and it's been in storage ever since. Probably the most stupid expensive thing I bought happened recently when I bought two albino boa constrictors, a male and a female, for an impressive amount of money. Everyone's like, you spent what on what? But these snakes do breed and I can sell the babies to different breeders I know. Noodles Offspring. The most expensive thing I ever bought is a house. I bought it a couple of weeks ago. It's in Santa Ana, Orange County, California. It has nothing in it, it's totally and completely empty and it's just me and my daughter and my sister who live there. I share custody of my daughter with her mum, so I had to buy somewhere for my kid's sake. How much did it cost? Oh, that's a secret. I'm Jess Kisser, Sepultura. The most expensive? Hell, I don't know. But one thing I bought in Japan, and I wasn't really aware of the price when I was buying it, was a Black Sabbath album, a special edition of their first record. That cost me $150, but it was worth it. Black Sabbath are my favourite band. We had a chance to play with Sabbath at the last Aussie show in Costa Mesa, California. That was amazing, because I'm such a big fan. I must be to spend $150 on an album. Danny, Cradle of Filth. Uh, I once bought a second-hand Ford Escort. That's enough, most expensive things, editor. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! 
Concerts. The first concert review this week is Iron Maiden, live at the Sing Sing Club Jerusalem on Thursday, September 28th. This one is reviewed by Paul Elliott, and this one gets a high voltage out of five. Does it? <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> yes, it does. It gets a high voltage out of five, a four out of five. I couldn't see the concert quota at the top because the way they've um, laid out Kerrang this week, Blaze Bailey's big bouncy head <laughs> covers over high voltage and electrocution, so I had to turn the page. Sorry for that brief interruption. Let's get on with the review. The seconds are ticking away before Iron Maiden's first live performance with new singer Blaze Bailey, and there are problems. The PA is spluttering, and a crash barrier has buckled just below the rim of the stage. Just audible over the Jurassic metal of Saxon's wheels of steel are the sound of a hammer bashing a new barrier into place and Maiden manager Rod Smallwood cursing the small nightclub PA. But by the time the Saxon tune ends, the gloom lifts, Walrus face production manager Dickie Bell waves his pocket torch to signal the all clear and Iron Maiden head off from their backstage huddle to the club's cramped stage. They hit the boards, already gunning the first riff, but uh, which riff? It sounds like a Maiden classic, but for the first couple of bars it's difficult to place it. Then it hits home. It's the current single, Man on the Edge. Clearly, Maiden are still Maiden without Bruce Dickinson. Blazes in the crowd's faces from the off, snarling, punching the air, staring them down like some nutter on the steps of Camden Town Tube on a Friday night. To his left a guitarist Dave Murray, who can't stop grinning all night, he's so happy to be back on a stage, and bassist Steve Harris, fired up and Larry foot on the monitor, spitting out every lyric. To Blaze's right is Yannick Gers, who nearly takes the singer's head off twice as he swings his guitar around. I didn't realise the stage was so small, Yannick laughs later. And at the back is Nico McBrain, doing what he does best, battering the shit out of things. The crowd, maybe 300 of them packed in tight, love the new Iron Maiden. Okay, they're not as critical as the UK audience, but Bruce Dickinson isn't missed tonight. Not even on songs which Bruce helped elevate to classic status with his supreme heavy metal howl. Blaze mostly uses a lower register than Bruce, but the new boy has the conviction to deliver all the band's greatest songs, and a set which mixes classics with the best of Maiden's new album The X Factor is balanced just about right. Nothing of the newies sounds as good as Wrathchild or Hello Be Our Name, but the new stuff does make a lot more sense when peppered with a few up-tempo crowd pleasers like Two Minutes to Midnight and The Trooper. No running free tonight, no run to the hills either, but hell, they can't play all night, and they did at least do the number of the beast, here in the birthplace of Christianity. So I made in the back, still a blast, they ain't dead yet. Next up, we have Nine Inch Nails, live at the Meadowlands Arena, New Jersey, on Wednesday, September the 27th. Reviewed by Steve Blush, this one gets a static out of five, which is a three out of five. For most modern rock fans, Nine Inch Nails have slowly and steadily developed into one of the most important and influential bands of our time. Sculpting an infectious blend of industrial drive and pop appeal, Trent Reznor and his Manji Horde are well on their way towards achieving complete market domination. Currently touring as co-headliners with the legendary David Bowie, Nine Inch Nails are making a powerful connection between numerous generations of fans. Nine Inch Nails' performance tonight was an unrelenting onslaught that had to be experienced to be believed. Replete with fantastic stage production and state-of-the-art sound, Reznor's rascals screamed and whined their way through over an hour of pure sonic bedlam. The highlight was a seamless jam between Bowie and his band and the Nine Inch Nails ensemble. 
Reznor played sax to a killer track from Bowie's experimental album, Low. Then Bowie and the Nails jammed out on Balls to the Wall renditions of the current Nine Inch Nails hit, Hurt, and the Bowie standard Scary Monsters. After which, Bowie took centre stage. Time for us to get some sleep. The problems with Nine Inch Nails' overall vibe are exemplified by the contradictions within their mind-melting music. Harsh, yet lush. Soft, yet mean. Evil, yet gentle. But watching Trent wail and flail with trademark tortured abandon, one has to ask whether he's sincere or if this is just some well-perfected stage shtick. None of which matters, so long as Reznor delivers the goods. Judging by tonight's reception, Trent has his maniacal minions eaten out of his hands. Nine Inch Nails can take solace in the fact that nobody does it better. Next up, we have Alanis Morissette live at Gino Stockholm, Wednesday, September 27th. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this one gets electrocution out of five, five out of five. I could see the concert quota <laughs> on this page. Um, Blaze Bailey's head wasn't in the way, thank God. There's a worldwide buzz on this young Canadian. The entire Swedish music industry was out in force to catch Alanis Morissette's debut show here to a virtual sellout crowd and to marvel at the brilliance of her Jagged Little Pill album. Backed by a rocking bunch of musos, including guitarist Nick Lashley, last seen with Sass Jordan, it was inevitable that the Morissette live experience would be considerably heavier than on record. Opening with All I Really Want, Alanis and crew proceed to reel off almost every song from the record. Of course, the biggest cheer goes to the current hit single, You Ought to Know, but there are even better songs in the Morissette repertoire than this. Hand in my pocket, an ironic for instance, that are bound to ensure further smash hits and sales longativity. The last review this week is for Collective Soul, live at the King's Cross Splash Club, London, on Tuesday, October the 10th. Reviewed by Paul Elliott, this one gets high voltage out of five, four out of five. One day you're playing a packed US theatre where you've sold millions of albums. The next you're squeezed into a sweat box like The Splash and you don't mean dick in the UK. That's life for Collective Soul, the quiet men of American rock. There are no lifestyle short crops here. Collective Soul line up with three guitars and a mass of flailing hair. Main man Ed Rowland ends up singing through mouthfuls of it. But don't think this is a cartoon band with all that hair and all those guitars. The reason they've sold millions in the US is simple. They've got great songs. Haircuts aside, Collective Soul and Live have much in common. They're all easygoing regular guys. Both bands can write a tune and both can really turn on the power. Collective Soul's riffs are simple and strong. Gel is quirky and sharp. Where the river flows, heavy and groovy, shine, the perfect grunge era anthem. They also play a song they wrote in the 80s but can't recall because it's tied up in legal red tape. The song is amazing, but Collective Soul won't lose any sleep over it. They've got great songs coming out of their ears. Lovely, mellow stuff like The World I Know too. If you want songs that'll warm your heart one minute and kick your butt the next, check Collective Soul out. Monsters of Ruck. We're in South America with Ozzy Osbourne and the local police are threatening to kick the shit out of us. Stefan Chirazzi dodges truncheons as the Monsters of Rock Tour tears through Chile. So here we are, eating sea bass with Ozzy Osbourne in Santiago, Chile, as you do, chuckling as new guitarist Joe Holmes emerges from his hotel room. This fish dinner is Holmes' first meal that doesn't include pasta or tomato sauce. The poor buggers riddled with paranoia about getting the shits. Bless him. 
Welcome to the Monsters of Rock in South America, where Ozzy Osbourne is headlining in Chile, Brazil and Argentina, as well as taking the first steps out on a world tour to coincide with the release of his latest album, Osmosis. In Sao Paulo's Paciambo Stadium, Ozzy is bursting with energy, yet he's more relaxed than he ever was on the No More Tours dates. With no drinkers in the band, he's comfortable and happy, and for once doesn't seem to have the slightest worry about his voice giving out. He's cheerful, chirpy, and not at all like the reclusive figure he has sometimes been during recent tours. Yep, Ozzy's back. Joe Holmes is wired with excitement, but is channeling all his energy into practicing his guitar scales. Drummer Dean Castronova, meanwhile, is equally vibed up, but not doing too good a job of containing himself. He's a nice guy, but he's obviously completely hyped beyond normality. Compared to his rhythm partner, Geezer Butler, who sits quietly chomping a bowl of vegan prepared mashed potatoes, he is like the roadrunner. It is painfully obvious at this rate of accelerated behavior, Dean cannot last, and he does not. A few days after returning to the US, his place is reclaimed by Aussie's old skin beater, Randy Castillo. The crazy gigs of Brazil and Argentina are no preparation for the madness that is Chile. The venue's small arena, similar in appearance to the Mad Max Thunderdome, the scent in the air suggests that things will not be calm. Add to this the sight of Chile's police, dressed like the Gestapo in brush wool coats and smart-ass caps, a small arsenal around their waists and faces of frozen stone, and it doesn't feel too harmonious. Sure enough, the cops get their chance to beat up young people within minutes. Two fans going into the show are a bit shovey-shovey out of my way, and before you know it, Chili's Finest have grabbed the pair, thrown them up against the doors, stuck the truncheons in for a few Swifties, and then dragged them into the building to start laying the boot in. The first person to catch on to this is Paul Chavaria, Aussie's production manager and general tour leader. On seeing what's going on, Chavaria dives in to help out the two fans, only to find himself being grabbed by the police and handcuffed. Paul is whisked off into the local promoter's office. Suddenly, the promoter's representative, a diminutive, dynamic woman called Sylvia, announces that no one's going to jail and starts to talk. She's using heavyweight political power and she's getting things sorted. Her husband, a US diplomat stationed in Santiago since 1978, is mentioned repeatedly. There's talk of American hostility and the United Nations and the thuggish police start to think very hard. Suddenly, as abruptly as he was cuffed, Paul Chavaria is set free. Lucky, really, as jail time in Chile is a weak minimum and the beatings are free of charge when you're inside. Ozzy is acutely aware of how volatile this situation is as he goes on stage and an insane and electric atmosphere pervades. Ever the old pro, Ozzy makes the best of the situation and is greeted with whoops and screams. A look over my shoulder reveals the most scared person in the building. Jerry Melee has done Vietnam. He's done David Bowie tours, he's done Slayer tours, he's done Nine Inch Nails tours, and he's done U2 tours for a long, long time. He has seen confrontation and conflict that would reduce you to a dribbling, pants-shitting wreck. He has, through his policy of peace and positivity, helped to mollify some of the most charged-up crowds in the world. That's the most fucking nervous I've ever been at a gig in my career, he says breathlessly after the show. Tough though, this is to imagine a ring of fans seated up on the balcony ledger waiting for the lemming leap command from Ozzy. They're itching for the words, go fucking crazy. They are just begging for the chance to turn this place to rubble. At one point during the show, a glance up into the rafters reveals a selection of diehards who have climbed out into the centre of the building's roof. Quite what their intention is, no one really knows, and no one wants to hang around to find out. The next day, Therapy's Andy Cairns and a member of Clawfinger, who played the previous night, narrowly escape arrest when the police stormed their hotel to Clinkham for alleged indecent exposure. 
Fortunately, they've caught early flights to Buenos Aires. Clearly, we are not welcome here. In the peace and quiet of the hotel room, there's some time to sit back and reflect on what has brought everyone down here in the first place, namely Ozzy's new album Osmosis. One thing about this record is that you're never short of a surprise, says the Oz. And every time you put a new album out, it's like gambling on the Grand National. The bottom line is that if you're not thinking about it, you shouldn't be doing it anyway. But for me, it's been like a gestation period. Only, it's a three-year pregnancy. I've never spent so much time and money on an album in my life. What about the band right now? This interview took place before Dean's departure. I'm not too sure, really. I'm having a lot of fun, but I haven't been dissecting things too much. As long as we all go up there and give it 100%, then great. I must admit that I was a little reluctant to come back out here at one point. If only because I was worried about keeping up the pace. But the show's longer now than the last tour and I'm having a lot more fun. And how's the new kid Joe fitting in? My feelings towards Joe are that he's a really, really good kid. He's not Zach Wilde. He's not Jake E. Lee. He's not Randy Rhodes. And he's not Tony Iommi. But he's his own fucking person. The one regret I do have is not finding Joe before Osmosis because it would have been a nice way to launch off and he plays every song note for note the way they were written. Most players always try to add a little bit of their own fucking flavour or whatever, but not Joe, and it's great with Geezer up there again too. Ozzy seems to be enjoying himself a whole lot more than last time around. What's the secret? As soon as I got off tour last time I started working out. It's the greatest stress release in the world. I love working out. I love breaking a sweat. If I don't work out at least once a day, it affects my mood and my day. And it is another addiction. I mean, I'm an addictive person, so anything I like will be an addiction. But then again, chuckles the Oz Riley, isn't life itself addictive? And what you do on the way? It's what you do along the way that counts. Then the future looks bright. After all, two weeks headlining Monsters of Rock to sold out crowds of up to 50,000 people is no slouch start. And avoiding arrest in Chile is, in 1995, a fat layer of icing on the cake. Communication and the letter of the week this week begins. I've just heard that the Wild Hearts are going to split up. Seeing as I'm a massive fan, I'm rather understandably upset. But I'm not particularly surprised. Actually, I am surprised. Surprised that it didn't happen sooner than it has. I know that they've had their hassles over the years, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks we're losing one of the greatest bands that ever graced this country's stages. We shall miss them more than they could possibly imagine. Ginger, Danny, Rich, Stiddy, CJ, Bam, Jeff, Devin, Willie, and all the other millions who've at some point been in the Wild Hearts. Goodbye, good luck, and we all love your heaps. I'd just like to take this opportunity to say to all those people who aren't convinced that Ginger's the best songwriter in the world, that he's the only person I know of who managed to rhyme hassle with asshole. I thank you. Marshall, Norfolk. Dry your eyes, Marshall. CJ and Willie are back with the excellent Honeycrack. Stiddy's rebounded with whatever, and I don't think you've heard the last from Ginger yet. A Kerrang goodie bag is on its way to you to cheer you up until he leashes his next devilish plan. Stay tuned. Editor. I cannot believe the audacity of your reply to Max Shippen's letter in Kerrang 566. So you make a point of reviewing music, not personal lives, do you? What about all the articles on Courtney Love and Hull? Of the many times she's appeared in Kerrang, the musical quotient has been reviews of the album and a bunch of live dates. The rest of the articles have been wholly personality-based rather than musically related. And what about Metallica, Guns N' Roses and Nirvana? These bands appear in Kerrang every week and haven't had an album released between them in years. Come on, Kerrang. While I welcome the change to a more tabloid style, we all love a bit of showbiz gossip, your reply to Mr. Shipton's heartfelt letter was not only trite, 
but a downright lie. Tim Wood, Huddersfield. I can't believe it. Why did the Wild Hearts have to do it? It's just so fucking pointless. They are the best band in the world ever. They're the best songwriter in the world ever and also tons of great material. There's no fucking justice when you consider that Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, ACDC and Black Sabbath are all still going. All I can hope for is that the gig at the Manchester Academy will be the best I've ever seen. Simon Langellum. Fear not Simon, see letter of the week, editor. Gagging for a shagging. Please, please print a picture of the really gorgeous Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon. I would drink his soup anytime. Shannon Soup Spoon, Plymouth. I'm just listening to my copy of Green Day's Insomniac and it's not bad. I do believe Dookie is the best though, but the main point is to all the sad wankers who say Green Day are shit because they're popular, just because a band sells a few million records doesn't mean they can't still write decent songs. And just because a few people jump on the bandwagon doesn't mean you should jump off. Ooh, you've got me angry now. I'll have to go and kick someone. Bloke, Bedford. I just want to say thank you to Morn for saving my weekend. I was taken ill and missed Cathedral, but I didn't feel as though I'd wasted my money because Morn were well worth the fiver I paid. Please can we have an article on them? They deserve more exposure. Jonathan, Cheshire. Ill communication. Dirty Harrys. Well, hardly. New York Harry Krishna mob shelter don't drink, smoke, or even have sex. Jason Arp enters the crazy world of the weirdest hardcore band in history. Are we a dangerous cult considered shelter singer Ray Capo munching away in a Harry Krishna vegan restaurant? Yes we are, but we're a cult of enlightenment, not destruction. It's better than humming Morrissey songs all day. He's got a point. It's just that religious bands like these four Krishnas from New York traditionally provoke a cry of send in the lions. King's X, Believer and Trouble are just three examples of metallic bands whose careers have suffered for their, in those cases, Christian beliefs. Striper, they deserved it. Shelter may just be the first band to gain respect for their beliefs. Even if you hate Harry Krishnas with their books, bells and suspiciously loving grins, chances are you'll warm to Shelter, even if it's just for their music. Born from the ashes of mid-80s hardcore heroes youth of today, their excellent second album mantra contains some of the best melodic hardcore you'll hear right now. And you want metal, Shelter pay Slayer and Exodus riffs in their sound checks. Ray Capo is a dedicated straight edger. This means he doesn't smoke, drink or do drugs. Furthermore, he hasn't ejaculated in seven years. Through choice, and that includes self-gratification, folks. Yeah, seven years he smiles. Can you believe that? Not really, but where does it all go? It's supposed to be stored up, he answers, tapping his shaven head. All ancient martial arts and medicines said you should not pass semen because it was very detrimental to the body. They tell footballers not to have sex before the game because it drains the body. Giving up sex makes you very bitter in the beginning, but it's very sweet in the end. Did you know that promiscuous cultures have the highest suicide rate? Sex causes great pleasure, but also great pain and stress. When Capo got into the New York hardcore scene in the early 80s, clubs like CBGB's were riddled with drugs. It didn't take him long to realise it wasn't for him. I can't even describe how bad it was, he laughs. No one was straight edge between 82 and 85. Everyone was into smoking dust, cocaine speed, smoking herb, drinking heroin and glue. I dabbled a little bit at first, but I didn't get really into it. People tend to do them for the wrong reasons. To impress a girl or a guy or their friends. My philosophy is, is that you don't have to eat dirt to know it's bad. When I became Krishna, it wasn't because it was the cool thing on the scene. I did it for myself. My friends and family thought I was crazy, and it hurts when people you care about think you're doing a bad thing. But I had to do it. Above Govinda's restaurant, just off London's Soho Square, is a small Krishna temple. 
After the meal, Ray goes up to pay his respects. He is, in fact, a Branana priest, which means he's second initiated. Who better then to field a few questions about the Krishna faith? Like, why do followers approach people in streets when it only irritates the fuck out of them? Personally, I hate being approached to, admits Capo. But here's a guy like you and me who obviously thinks these books are so important, he's dedicated enough to sell them on the streets. That's sort of cool, but it's not my favourite way of spreading our message. Shelter are here to break that stereotype. How's about the little bells that Krishna's ring while dancing around the streets? Those are just simple musical instruments used for singing. Singing's very important. We sing every morning at 4.30 when our first programme starts. Music's always been tightly woven with uh, spirituality, but in the 20th century it's become an egocentric thing. How about chanting? Some people might call it brainwashing. Brains need to be washed, he defends Riley. Our chanting is called a mantra, which causes subtle sound vibrations used for centuries in India for medicine and healing. But if you want to attack things being repeated over and over again, then look no further than all the McDonald's jingles on TV. If your mind's like a garage, you're filling it with garbage. 20th century America is a dangerous cult, balks Ray suddenly. People eat food that kills them. They drink and smoke, harming their bodies. Everyone thinks the goal in life is to work out and become some kind of Calvin Klein guy. That's what I call dangerous. Okay, getting back to your abstinence from just about everything, what exactly does stimulate you? Your life sounds like a fairly numb existence. Yeah, but there is pleasure to be had. Shelter helps me get aggressions out because it's not like I'm a saint or anything. Also, we just ate a nice feast and that's pleasurable. But a pleasure that makes you happy in the long run doesn't come from hurting your mind and body. If you have a really big feast, you get sick afterwards. You have to get pleasure from inside. You take shelter in Krishna, mantras and meditation. You develop inner peace and happiness. Sensuality is fun, but happiness lasts. That's certainly a thought to be enjoyed while stirring your late evening vodka. But would Ray look down on the dope-smoking, beer-guzzling, shag-happy shelter fan? Well, I try to be strict with myself and lenient with others, he muses. The best way to get things across to someone is to set a good example. If you follow a spiritual example, you'll be happy. If you're promiscuous, you'll be distressed. If I think of myself as superior, that's not good. At any moment, I could be like them. I could do all those things tomorrow. Anyone can uh, have huge falls. Or, if you haven't come in seven years, huge balls. The posters this week are great. There is a um, poster of the Garbage album. There's a Trent Reznor with Nine Inch Nails classic uh, Downward Spiral session. And in the middle, there's a Green Day Insomniac album artwork from October 95. I have got no idea why this is still in my Kerrang! Because this is a great poster that should have been on my wall. It's quite clear that in 1995, at 14 years old, I was a complete idiot. Let's move on to singles. The singles this week are reviewed by Liz Evans. The first single reviewed is Bullet with Butterfly Wings by Smashing Pumpkins. This one gets 4Ks. Not the most obvious single choice from the Pumpkins, but then how the hell do you go about choosing one cut from two hours worth of album material? This does the band proud and exemplifies the multi-textured beauties of their forthcoming epic, soft, hard, slow, fast, bittersweet and truly sumptuous. Available for one week only, so get your skates on. Alanis Morissette, with her single Hand In My Pocket, this gets 3Ks. Warm sassy vocals and witty lyrics elevate an otherwise largely mainstream tune from the mire of typical US radio play fodder. Morissette has the mark of an individual character and it shows. Quirky, smart and distinctive. Hawkwind with their single Area 54 EP. It's not a single, it's an EP. 
and this one gets two Ks. Love them or hate them, they're an institution. But if you're not a hippie punk or a new age waster, this will annoy the hell out of you. Cecil with their single No Excuses. This gets 4Ks. Moody, uptight and intense. This is a scowling little beast, stuttering in thick with discontent. It breaks out into a snarl, all the while building on the tension. A guitar break howls through the middle. The rhythm spasmodically carries everything up from a tremor to a quake, and it's all over with a shudder. Bit like sex, really. Understand with their single South End. This gets 3Ks. Britain's answer to Vagazzi whack out a sensitive tune, all imploring, thrash about riffs and hang on a sec lyrics. Changeable, yet repetitive in parts, this is nevertheless a storming whiff of things to come from East West's most promising new acquisition. Powerful, hungry, and purposeful. And the single of the week this week is Sitting at Home by Honeycrack. This gets 4Ks. Bursting with life, this dazzling little cracker from ex Wildheart CJ and Willie's new band is the future of British rock. Upbeat, positive, and driven. A frenzy of punk pop with belting guitars and glorious lyrics about the joys of a life spent at home. It's fast, fun, and furious, and unafraid of borrowing the most refreshing ingredients from Ginger's book while retaining a truly original flavour. A kickstart for anyone's day. We now come to this week's cover stars, hometown heroes. From humble beginnings in Sheffield, Def Leppard have pulled through tragedy to sell 36 million albums. Paul Elliott follows the band as they go back to their roots. At 61 Crooks Road, Sheffield is an inconspicuous terraced house. A bit of the guttering has come away from the wall and flaps in the wind, but you'd hardly notice it were if not for Def Leppard singer Joe Elliott jumping up out of his seat as we pass in the minibus, pointing and yelling, I were born there. Yes, this is where the Def Leppard story begins. A rock and roll tale stranger than any fiction. A story of incredible success and sickening tragedy. The story of five lads from a tough Yorkshire steel town who wound up being one of the biggest rock bands on the planet. Def Leppard are back in Sheffield today to be honoured for their services to the city. There are people to meet, plaques to unveil and photo opportunities to be had. Lots of shaking babies and kissing hands, says Joe. Or is it the other way round? Joe Elliott was born in 61 Crooks Road in 1959. 17 years later, he formed Def Leppard with guitarists Pete Willis and Steve Clark, bassist Rick Sav Savage and drummer Rick Allen. A couple of faces have changed since then. Willis was sacked in 1982 and Clark died an alcoholic in 1991. Their replacements, Londoner Phil Collin and Irishman Vivian Campbell are greeted today as adopted sons of Sheffield. Just around the corner from Joe's old house is the Crooks Working Men's Club. Leopard played a residency here in 1979, the year they signed a record deal with Vertigo. A plaque commemorating those early gigs is to be unveiled. The bus pulls up and Joe is first out to meet the crowd gathered outside the club. Much back-slapping in shoes. Viv is jostled aside as the rest of the band are led inside the club. Fuck this for a carry-on, Viv laughs. The small club, polished wood stage, is backed with heavy gold drapes and lit with a half dozen lamps. Somehow, it isn't difficult to picture the young Def Leppard playing here, all of them in spandex, Joe with a mop of dark greasy curls, not the newly shorn blonde bob of 1995. Phil looks bewildered, like a rabbit in a car's headlights, as another arm slips around his waist and another flashbulb pops. This must be terrifying for you lot, Joe sneers at Kareng's southern shandy drinkers, surrounded by all these fucking northerners. As Joe pulls the cover off the plaque, someone shouts out, 
It were 50p to get in here to see Def Leppard in 79, and I want my money back, some wag replies. The bus heads off again with a couple of screaming girls pressing their faces up against the window, puckering up at Joe and mouthing I love you. Phil Colin laughs. It's nice to be pushing 40 and still have young girls chasing after you. Two girls have made it onto the bus. They're Leslie 12 and Susie 9, the daughters of Leopard tour manager Malvin Mortimer. Susie has baked a cake for the band. Sadly, Phil can't eat his slice because he's a vegan and the cake is made with eggs. Both girls sing along to the video of Leopard's new single When Love and Hate Collide as it's screened on the bus TV. Yes, those Leopard boys sure can write a tune. Susie and Leslie's favourite Def Leopard song is Let's Get Rocked. On the ride to the Don Valley Stadium where Leopard played to 40,000 people in 1993, Joe is full of local trivia. See that boozer over there? That's where Joe Cocker, another local hero, used to drink. His mum dragged him out of there one night. He was about 38 at the time. Joe Elliott is also happy to have a laugh at his own expense. Unlike many lesser rock bands, Def Leppard have not become humorless wankers en route to selling 36 million albums. We were on Belgian TV the other day and this bloke goes, here with their new single When Love and Hate Collide, it's Led Zeppelin. We pass a shop called Hillsborough Electric. We must be close to Hillsborough, the home of Rick Savage's fave footy team Sheffield Wednesday. It's just over the hill, says Sav, like most of the players, eh? There are 30 people in or around the foyer of the Don Valley Stadium when the Leopard bus shows up. Joe peers at the crowd and announces in TV pundit vernacular. They realised their career was on the wane when they returned to Don Valley and only 30 people turned up. Inside, another plaque. Fittingly, Leopard were the first band to perform at the stadium. They promised to return next summer after release of their sixth album, Slang, which is currently being mixed in LA. Len Crossley, chairman of Sheffield International Venues and all-round nice old geezer, thanks Leopard for doing their bit for the local community. As ambassadors for Sheffield, Def Leopard are doing a marvellous job, says Len, who later tells Kerrang that the smart money is on Barnsley FC for the Coca-Cola Cup. Fat chance, Len. Next stop, a car park. Here is where Sheffield City Council is to build a national centre for popular music. The basic idea is of a working rock and roll museum. The first donation is one of Phil Collins' guitars, signed by all of Def Leppard. Sav wrinkles his nose. If you can smell anything, it's because we're near Bramwell Lane, he snorts. Bramwell Lane is home to Sheffield's other football team, United. Joe supports United, and as United and Wednesday are deadly rivals, you're unlikely to hear Joe and Sav enjoying a pleasant discussion about football. Phil Collin couldn't give a shit about the game. His head is full of the next Leopard album. Slang was recorded in a house in the posh Spanish resort of Marbella and is, says Phil, harder, edgier, yet more relaxed. You know what I mean? Uh, sort of. The mayor of Sheffield turns up to the band's next appearance in Tudor Square. Radio Hallam DJ Dave Kilner introduces Leopard to the 2,000 strong crowd. The band each receive a box of goodies, full of local produce like Bassett's Licorice All Sorts and Henderson's Relish. Thanks, we're going home to get fat, Joe laughs. 10,000 balloons are then released from under a huge tarpaulin, but only after clearance from air traffic control at Manchester Airport. Each balloon has a card attached, featuring a competition to win Leopard's entire back catalogue on CD. No wonder people were scrambling around like maniacs trying to catch a balloon. Newlywed Leopard fans Simon and Emma Clark uh, meet the band, still doled up in a wedding dress and flash whistle, as in whistle and flute suits you, sir. Six-year-old Lauren Smith gets a cuddle from Joe as Leopard head back to the bus. When Joe scoops her up in his arms, she's as excited as a small child with a special reason to be excited. Then it's off to the town hall for tea with the mayor. In the mayor's oak-panelled parlour, the band signed the visiting book. 
Did you see what I wrote? Joe asks, slurping his strong Yorkshire tea. I signed it. Joe Elliott, international rock star and ambassador for Sheffield, followed by an exclamation mark. It was a joke. Make sure you put that in. The mayor pays tribute to Leopard and to fan Kim Eastwood. 18-year-old Kim wrote to the mayor last year, urging him to award the Leopard the keys to the city. I couldn't do that, the mayor shrugs. But he and Kim and her two friends, Joy Glover and Lindsay Adams, are able to present the band with a framed council resolution, whatever the fuck that is, thanking them for pumping up Sheffield's image. I couldn't stop shaking when I met them, Kim blushes. Kim attended Sheffield's Westfield School, where Leopard played their first ever gig. Her fave Lep's tracks are Love Bikes and yes, Let's Get Rocked. Her favourite Lep is Joe, for whom a rock is not out of the question. The evening sees Leopard return to the Wappentake Bar to play an acoustic gig. Olga Marshall booked them to appear here in 1978. She paid them 15 quid. Olga's still running the joint and she's still paying 15 quid, grumbles Joe from the stage. We've had a lot of bands play here over the years, Olga smiles, but Def Leopard were very keen. They're nice lads too. That's Death Leopard for you. Rock superstars, millionaires even, but good with it. Down to earth, up for a laugh, and still a great rock and roll band. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to albums. Albums, remember them? They were really good, weren't they? God, seems like no one, no one does albums anymore, do they? There you go. Old man yells at Cloud. What I do remember that was great about albums from this point was when you pre-ordered something um, and it would be out on a Monday when all albums would come out. Very occasionally you'd get the album on a Friday or a Saturday. Uh, they would send them out to you early and that was just the best. And especially, it was even better if you got that album before your friends did. <laughs> and they had to go to shops like mugs and you got it from Rockbox in Surrey or somewhere like that. And you you were already playing it on the Sunday, and they had to wait till Monday, like probably after school, to go buy the CD. <laughs> what I do remember though is my friend Spencer pre-ordered the Roots Bloody Roots single, and he had that before I did, and I was absolutely livid. I was fuming, and I, I said to him, "Hang on, Spence, we're supposed to be friends here. Why didn't you tell me that you were getting that single and where you got it from, so that we could have both got it?" And uh, yeah, he didn't tell me and he got it before me. And he heard the single before me. Before actually it was on, um, uh, it probably was on MTV beforehand actually. Anyway, I was fuming, fucking fuming. Couldn't believe it, bastard. The album of the week this week is Osmosis by Ozzy Osbourne. Reviewed by Paul Rees, this one gets 4Ks. The epitaph that will be written when Ozzy Osbourne finally shuffles off this mortal coil. Whilst no doubt flashing peace signs heavenwards and hollering let's go fucking crazy at his maker will be a strange and possibly unbalanced one. He will, quite frankly, be recalled as a bit of a mad bastard. A bloke whose self-destructive approach to life would shame a kamikaze pilot. During the course of his turbulent career, Ozzy has in no particular order drunk oceans of alcohol, ingested enough drugs to flatten a herd of elephants, bitten the head off a dove and a bat, which led to a series of wholly unwanted anti-rabies jabs, attempted to strangle his wife, spent time in a mental institution, cleaned up several times, retired more than once and generally caused as much mayhem as a small nuclear war. The footnote to Ozzy's story will almost certainly mention the fact that he was once a singer with Black Sabbath and also a highly successful solo artist. What none of this will convey is that Ozzy Osbourne, 
along with his fellow original Sabs, is one of the single most important and influential figures in hard rock heavy metal, call it what you will, history. Without Sabbath, there would be no Metallica, Pantera, Paradise Lost or heavy metal as a whole, no Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains or Grunge in general. It's for this reason that Osmosis is infinitely more credible than a Scorpions or Saxon album. Ozzy may be old school, but you always laugh with as opposed to at him. Also, his first studio album for four years is very good indeed. Here, Ozzy continues to make the sort of music that he's made happily or otherwise, given his resultly uh, sour face bent for the past decade plus. Melodic hard rock with chunky guitars, big melodies, and absolutely no samples, raps, or ill-advised attempts to popularize the Polynesian nose flute. It's playing safe, but with a quality product rather than a limited imagination. Of the 10 tracks here, there are four mid-paced chuggers with great hooks. Perry Mason, I Just Want You, Tomorrow, Denial. Two songs that indulge Ozzy's obsession for Beatles-esque harmonies with a fair old panache, Ghost Behind My Eyes, My Little Man. A ballad that threatens to hit the sick bag, only to be raised by a highly emotive lead vocal, Old LA Tonight. Two tracks that are little more than good riffs looking for a decent tune, Thunder Underground, My Jekyll Doesn't Hide, and one cast iron killer, See You On The Other Side. Simply the best thing Ozzy's done for many a year. Ozzy himself does a fine job in his distinctively, tunefully, tuneless style. While several of Zach Wilde's perfectly constructed solos highlight how right he was for this band and how wrong he is for a lead role in his own hopelessly dull pride and glory, or a cameo in that ludicrous soap opera that is Guns N' Roses. In short then, Brian, Ozzy Osbourne, a lunatic, but a clever one. Next up we have the album Proud To Commit Commercial Suicide by Nailbomb. Reviewed by Jason Arnop, this one gets 4Ks. Sepultura's Max Cavalera and Fudge Tunnel's Alex Newport originally conceived Nailbomb as a vicious underground hate machine. Their point blank album of last year was intended to be their first and last release. You'd think a live album would be the last thing Nailbomb might issue. Live albums are surely for mainstream rock bands who run out of ideas. Maybe Nailbomb wanted to make the heaviest live LP ever, but petty contradictions aside, is it any good? Yes. It's certainly a whole lot more entertaining than standing at this year's Dynamo Festival on the day. The sound that afternoon was patchy, with Max's uh, guitar receiving particularly bad treatment from swirling gusts of wind. Bond is recording, with everything heading straight to the mixing desk tape. Brutal clarity is finally achieved. Crank it up and Nailbomb are playing a secret gig in your room. Included in the band set were 8 tracks from Point Bank from which the opening wasted away some of your achievements, World of Shit and Sick Life by at Hardest. Two um, covers also cropped up and the Dead Kennedys police truck flies by on an exhilarating wave of noise with the punk legends drummer Peligro smashing the skins for nail bomb. The chuggy exploitation by UK hardcore act Doom is similarly done proud. To their credit, Nailbomb have tagged two new studio cuts onto the album's end. While You Sleep, I Destroy Your World is a groovier, dubbier piece of menacing razor wire while Zero Tolerance speaks for itself. If Nailbomb had a gravestone, the inscription would assuredly read, Fuck Off. The next album reviewed this week is Hot Charity by Rocket from the Crypt. Reviewed by Paul Rees, this one gets 4Ks. San Diego's Rocket from the Crypt are undoubtedly the underground band most likely to become very big. The reasons for this are entirely obvious. 
They are a terrific rock and roll band. In the best cult in the making traditions, they've continually released seven inches and vinyl LPs of which Hot Charity, 1200 copies only, is the latest. They write cool songs and they come armed with a brass section. On previous LPs, Rocket from the Crypt veered between chaotic brilliance, Kill the Funk, from 93 singles compilation, All Systems Go, and Simple Chaos, any of the bursts of shredded noise on the same album. Hot Charity sees the Crypt tightening up their act without losing any of their nerve-jangling thrill factor. The songs are shorter, sharper, and their utterly natural groove-tastic swagger has now moved off stun and on to pin you to the wall and tear your face off. Opener pushed sounds like an Iggy and the Stooges remix of vintage Aerosmith jamming through a James Brown tune. Poison Eyes, which comes later, goes one step further and merely gives the Stooges speed-fried TVI new lyrics. The rest, aside from Feathered Friends, which is the sort of thing Monster Magnet do better, is good enough to be the MC5 with a shit-kicking sax and trumpet duo. From the blast of My Arrow's Aim to the splatter rush of shucks, Hot Charity is a wild-eyed, amphetamine fueled garage classic. Play loud, play often, and enjoy. The next album review this week is The President of the United States of America by The President of the United States of America. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 4Ks. The Presidents of the United States of America have a simple agenda. Have a good time, all the time. Not once on their eponymous debut LP do they allow reality, maturity or sobriety to intrude. How many bands boldly proclaim we are not going to make it because there are a million better bands with a million better songs? One listen to this album and you'll know that tongues are planted deeply in cheeks because there are sonic stompers everywhere you turn. Things are definitely strange in the president's world. Feather plucking tells of chickens sending subsonic signals through elephant snot and on the country punk of back porch, those same self chickens are playing drums. The presidents are like nothing you've heard before. Kitty sees Chris Bailey croon to his feline friend, his bandmates meowing in sympathy. Stranger boasts the immortal line, you seem cool for a naked chicken a booth. And Peaches is an ode to well, can Peaches. The music, it's unashamedly melodic, kicks like a donkey and will tweak your ears playfully at every opportunity. Trust me, you'll love it. Next we have the album Live Fast Diarrhea by The Vandals. This one is reviewed by Morat and this gets 2Ks. After you've heard The Vandals once, like maybe their fear of a punk planet opus, they're just not funny anymore. There was a time when everyone laughed at American punk and The Vandals are an obvious example of why. They really think songs like Change My Pants, I Don't Wanna is hilarious. Stop it, I'm running out of ribs. In 1995, the only thing The Vandals got right is their album title because Live Fast Diarrhea really is shit. Siv with their album Set Your Goals. Reviewed by Meanie, this one gets 5Ks. The least you can expect from a punk rock band these days is effortless cloning of past masters or a top pastiche job. Observe Rancid, pure punk rock cabaret. Nout knew about it, but they do it with class. And fuck, don't they make it look easy. Now check out Siv. Siv are hot poop. And their version of hardcore is sometimes picture perfect, sometimes eclectic, always respectful and smart. Like so many happening US combos, quicksand, shellac, capone, etc. Siv are seasoned practitioners. In the band's engine room is drummer Sammy, whose resume is a who's who of New York hardcore, having found himself on the road with youth of today, age 14. He's also been in Shelter and Gorilla Biscuits. 
The latter having also been home to bassist Arthur and suave Mike Man Siv, from whom this outfit takes its name. With a pedigree like this, it's hardly surprising that Siv can lay down the definitive hardcore groove. What's surprising is that they can inject so much life into it. Even straightforward million miles an hour youth of today type numbers like Soundtrack for Violence sound brilliant. With a knowing wink, Siv lob in some Sham69 politics for good fun on United Kids, inject Can't Wait One Minute More with a healthy dollop of boy and add a bit of snuff for all twisted. With that, you have yourselves one storming LP, oozing style and stomping all over Rancid with size 12 brothel creepers. The last album reviewed this week is Love Songs for the Unloved by Sheer Terror. This one is reviewed by Morat and he gives this a free case. These days, it's easy to forget that punk rock was supposed to have an attitude problem. A decade since their inception, Sheer Terror haven't forgotten. Sheer Terror are an attitude problem. They don't write the greatest songs in the world. There are a few masterpieces like The Poison Idearist Drunk, Divorced and Downhill Fast, The Eerie Skinhead Girl and the Splendid Title Track. But much of the rest is just a generic hardcore which lacks imagination. But Sheer Terror are a band with hate tattooed on both knuckles and it ain't their problem if you don't like it. Be warned, you might get one of those knuckles in your face. Last up in this week's Kerrang we have uh, this piece. This ain't no fucking Bon Jovi man. They're hard as nails. Dave Grohl thinks they're cool, but Nail Bomb are splitting up. We put them through the ringer in their last ever interview. Max Cavalera. What would be the lineup of your all-time dream project, any four or five musicians from history, and what would the band sound like? I'd go for Gigi Allen and Bon Scott on vocals, Sid Vicious on bass, Keith Moon on drums, and Kurt Cobain on guitar. They'd sound like pure fucking hell. What would you call this band? Better Dead Than Mainstream. What five cover songs would Better Dead Than Mainstream perform? Five to One by The Doors, Fuck The Police by N.W.A., Welcome To Hell by Venom, Nazi Punk's Fuck Off by The Dead Kennedys, and Ministry's Just One Fix. What was the best thing about being in Nailbomb? Something that you couldn't achieve with Sepultura. The fact that even the most awful, disgusting, sick, fucked up idea or riff would still get used in Nailbomb. The Dynamo Festival, where your new LP proud to commit commercial suicide was recorded, was it cool or what? The show was like I thought it would be. Imperfect, raw, nervous, intense, hateful and unfriendly. A lot of people still don't understand the whole Nailbomb concept, which is about not giving a fuck about being tight and acting like you're in a real band. It's about doing whatever the fuck you feel like doing at that point in time, without even 1% of concern about tomorrow. This ain't no fucking Bon Jovi, man. Spill the beans on Dave Grohl wanting to join Nailbomb. We wanted to ask Dave about playing for Nailbomb at the Dynamo gig, because I met him before and he told me he was really into Sepultura and all that heavy shit, but I couldn't find him. He was on tour with the Foo Fighters. I haven't heard their album yet, but people have told me it was really good. I'll check it out. What would be the lineup for the worst project band of all time? And what would you call this heap of cack? How about Max Cavalera on vocals guitar and Alex Newport on vocals guitar, along with a bunch of other punk losers who don't give a fuck? A name for the band? How about Nailbomb? Alex Newport. What would be the lineup of your all time dream project band, any four or five musicians from history, and what would the band sound like? David Warner, film actor from The Omen and the man with two brains on vocals. The Marquis de Sade on four string guitar. The Six Million Dollar Man on bionic bass. Vincent Price on Hammond organ and Mark Parsons on drums. The band would probably sound like shit, but would be great to see. What would you call this band? 
uh, Piglet clone. What five cover songs would the band perform? I reckon Death Trip by Iggy and the Stooges, Where Is My Mind by the Pixies, Bad Penny by Big Black, Six Pack by Black Flag, and R.E.M.'s One I Love. These are the best songs ever written. What was the best thing about being in Nailbomb? Something that you couldn't achieve with Fudge Tunnel. We don't have to tour. Tell us about Nailbomb's Dynamo gig. Despite being hampered by technical problems from hell, the show was very enjoyable. The playing was pretty bad on my part, but the intensity level was 110%, which is more important, I think. What do you think of the Foo Fighters? I don't dislike them. It's just that I've heard that kind of thing a million times before. I expected something a little more creative from Dave Grohl. Maybe the second album will change things. What would be the lineup for the worst project band of all time? And what would you call the band? Jerry Garcia, Michael Jackson, anyone from the Spin Doctors or Hootie and the Blowfish, oh, and anyone from Rancid. I'd call the band Waltz in Dandelion. Chart Attack, and the number one album this week is The X Factor Iron Maiden. Number one in the indie LPs is Paranoid and Sunburnt Skunk and Nancy. And number one in the singles chart is When Love and Hate Collide by Def Leppard. This week, the reader's chart comes from Mark Pond of Pearly. His chart begins 1. Starla Smashing Pumpkins, 2. The Witch, The Cult, 3. NWO Ministry, 4. Youth Against Fascism, Sonic Youth, 5. Not For You, Pearl Jam, 6. Leash, Pearl Jam, 7. Like Suicide, Soundgarden, 8. Nomad, Sepultura, 9. Meadowship, Slinky and B Major, Chili Peppers, and 10. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, by Black Sabbath, obviously. Star Tracks come from Ed Rowland of Collective Soul. His chart begins 1. Ball Breaker, ACDC, 2. Ragged Ass Road, Tom Cochrane, 3. Avalon Roxy Music, 4. The Philosopher Kings by The Philosopher Kings, and 5. Achtung Baby by U2. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues, free tape, 14 tracks by your favourite new band. Next week we give you more with a fresh, bold new look. Everything you love about Kerrang! plus more news, more reviews, more competitions, more inside stories with Reef, Metallica, Skid Row, Ministry, Fear Factory and Offspring and a chance to win a trip to America. Kerrang! On sale on October 25th. Reserve your copy now. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next Wednesday as usual, just like clockwork. Um, I've really enjoyed this episode actually. It's been a really, uh, it's been a really fun one to do. So much to pack in. Uh, that's why this has gone over a little bit over the hour mark that I always try and aim for. But that's not the end of the world, is it? If you'd like to leave us a review on uh, Apple Music or Spotify, that'd be really, really great. No worries if not. We'll be back next Wednesday, as usual. I've already said that. And I've gone ahead already and looked at next week's Kerrang! And they've changed a lot of stuff. I might have to do a little bit of work <laughs> to maybe change stuff around because... I do remember this happening and Kerrang! looked very, very different and I don't think I liked it at the time. And going back now, I don't think I like it now. Anyway, we will cross that bridge next week. Look after yourselves and talk to you all soon. Bye for now. <laughs>